Everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. You have to be able to articulate what the person is feeling so that the listener will feel it as well. And, and that, that takes, like, being honest. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to 52 Conversations. June, among other things, is Black Music Month, and my guest today is a songwriter, producer, and music label owner who hails from one of the cornerstones of hip-hop, the Bronx. I'm Charles Bronson. I'm a, a songwriter and producer, and by default, I'm a CEO of a record label that I have to form to uh, serve as a vehicle for my music, and I call it Mound Records. M-O-U-N Records, and it's an acronym for Makings of Unforgettable New Records. And when you say it quickly, my own, you know, my own records, I I put it together to put out my own records. And um, since I put it together, I had actually signed an artist, and uh, the artist's name is Haley Smith, and that was my first project that I put out. And currently, I'm uh, promoting my new project entitled Group Hugs. And this is my debut release as an artist myself. Very nice, Charles. And welcome to 52 Conversations with B. Moore. And I'm so honored to have you as my guest today. I'm honored to be here. So let me ask you, Charles, your name, just your, your, your very name, talks about you being a son of the Bronx, the Boogie Down Bronx. And I, I just want to start out by asking you, what was life like for you growing up in, in, in the Bronx? Well, I mean, it, it, was, it was cool. I mean, I got a chance to see some, some crazy things, but it, it was normal to me. It didn't seem like it was, you know, something out of a, a movie like Fort Apache, the Bronx, the way that they characterized the Bronx in so many uh, movies and things of that nature. It was just, you know, it was cool. It was, you know, he came up, he was around a lot of kids in the neighborhood. and It was, it was a different time back then. It's different than it is right now. Because right now, it's very empty outside. You don't really see kids outside anymore the way they used to be when I was coming up. But it was, it was a fun period. Nice. And so, I mean, at some point, you had to be introduced to music. So how, how were you introduced to, to music? Well, I was always into music. My mother told me that I was just like, just I was always playing records when I was little, and I didn't know how to read, but I would play the records based on the labels that were on the records. And it's just always been my thing, and then I just naturally evolved into uh, writing. I was always into, like, just fascinated with the voice, but, like what could be done with the voice. And Stevie Wonder kind of got me into that. I was just blown away by what he used to do vocally. And that, that just started it. And then I wound up getting into it, and then hip-hop came out. And like every other kid in the hood, I was rapping, and I got into uh, little rap groups and singing groups. And then I just from there, I evolved into writing, writing a lot. And uh, that's like primarily the thing that I do now. Mm-hmm. 
So tell me about some of the songs that you write, maybe some of the themes that you focus on, because I know that each artist kind of has their thing that they may focus on or may be inspired by to write about. So what do you write about? Well, I mean, it's, it varies. Sometimes I'll write something that uh, is biographical or autobiographical, something that I experience, and I'll, I'll uh, get into that and I'll write based on my experience and how I feel about something if, it really, if I'm really compelled to write about it. And then there are other times where I'll write something for an artist. I'll try to craft something for them. Yeah, I'll try to craft something for them. Uh, based on what it is that they're trying to say or we're trying to capture on that project. So it, it, it really varies. And um, it, you know, it seems like the, the songs that are more personal tend to take... Uh, well, I can't say that. It, it, it varies. It, it's a different amount of times that it takes to complete them. Because I've, I've written songs in like one week and then one particular song, it took me 10 years to write mm. because it was that personal and it was just really difficult to write it. But I, I finally finished it. Right, right. And I know that had to be an accomplishment, you know, 10 years. What was that song about, if you don't mind me asking? Um, It was about an experience I had with a woman entitled My Firstborn. And it's like I would write about it, and I would I would feel it, and I would get angry. I would go through these feelings, and then I would just put the pen down and just leave it. And I'll come back to it some other time. And and it, it it literally took me ten years to finish that song. Wow, wow. And I plan on shooting a video to that at some point. But you know, I don't I don't want to be so so deep with the song because I don't want to get typecast where people just think I, I write stuff that's, you know, about serious matters because there's a fun side to me. There's definitely a fun side. There's a humorous side. So I'm going to put some stuff out in that vein pretty soon before I get to the other stuff, the real deep stuff. Nice, nice. And that's, that's I mean, I think that's true for, for us as just human beings. We have a a multi-dimensional experience where we have we experience highs and lows and you know things that are deep and things that are light so it's, it's you want to really be able to reflect on all of that from what i understand yeah 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 i want to be able to articulate that and and that's that's what is uh required in order to be a good writer you have to be able to articulate what the person is feeling so that the listener will feel it as well and and that that takes like being honest. You have to be real honest about what you're trying to lay down. Because sometimes you can write something, you you can intend for it to come out one way, but when it comes through the ink, it comes out another way, and it doesn't resonate with the people. So you have to be real careful and, and take your time with it. Mm, I see. I see. And I was really impressed by what you said in terms of taking a shift in terms of writing your own material in writing for uh, another artist. Talk a little bit about that in terms of how do, you, how do you approach that in terms of trying to write for somebody else and give them voice? Well, I, what I'll do is I'll decide what angle we want to attack the story from. 
you decide what it is you want to talk about and then how you're going to approach it because then it's very easy to start talking about some particular subject matter and then you wind up venturing off and going on a tangent and you're not staying, you're not disciplined with, with your story and your direction. So once you, once I decide that like this is the topic and what we're going to talk about and how we're going to address it and the point we want to make, then, then it becomes like trying to streamline it and stay focused and stay on, on that particular idea. And um, if, if it's for a, a different artist, I, I'll get their opinion about it and, and see how they feel about the subject and then try to write according to what they say. So, so it'll, so I'll be able to capture what, like the sentiment that they feel, and so that when they deliver their, their performance, the performance will be enhanced because they're feeling what they're saying. Right. right. And I, I looked at, uh, I, I kind of got that cue from um, what I learned about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis because I heard that when they produced Janet Jackson's album, the Control album, mm -hmm. they sat with her. They, did, they didn't just go in and cook up some material for her. They sat down with her and, and kind of got into her mind and, and, and how she was feeling and what she wanted to say. And from that, they crafted the material for her. And we know how that turned out. Right. That was a huge success. Huge success. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then a, a, another um, influence for me as a, a writer was uh, Babyface. Mm. Because, you know, there was an opportunity I had some time ago to pitch some music that I had to three Arista recording artists, and that was Deborah Cox, okay. Monica, and Whitney Houston. Okay. But at the time, I had, all I had was lyrics on a paper and music on a, a tape, on a CD, mm -hmm. to present it. I didn't have anybody to deliver. I hadn't had anybody come in the studio and deliver the song and perform it so that I could play it. And it didn't work. I, you know, it was a blown opportunity because I wasn't prepared. So I said, you know, from now on, I'm going to go and I'm going to have somebody recite the lyrics to the music so that I'd be able to play it. You know, get a female artist and have her drop it so that I could play it when I'm trying to, to present it to someone. And so I looked at how Babyface was able to um, produce an entire soundtrack of songs he, that he had written for women for that Waiting to Exhale soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And I said, man, how he was able to get into like a, a song or, or produce a song that women felt and the woman didn't even write it. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, that's a challenge. That's a real challenge. Cause how am I going to get into the, the frame of mind as a woman? You know what I mean? That's like, I can't do that. Right. But I, I had to kind of allow myself to be a little more sensitive to what a woman was feeling and, and let her talk and try to articulate what she was telling me through my pen. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I did it, and I, and I kept doing it, and I kind of I got a knack for it after a while. So I'm able to write for women as well, 
as the fellas. Very nice. And, and and so you mentioned Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Babyface. I know that Babyface, he's got credit for, I mean, beyond just his own personal recordings, just the music that he's written for other artists. He has so many credits to his name uh, that people just aren't even aware of. Uh, most people, I would say, aren't aware of in terms of the, the material that he's put together. But who else, as far as producers, are you inspired by? As far as producers, um, Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. Um, I, I still can't understand some of the chord structures that he's put in his music. Um, producers. Devontae Swain from Jodeci. Um, Lance and Prof T from the group Low Key. Um, of course, Teddy Riley. Okay. Teddy Riley. And DJ Premier. That's like my all time favorite hip hop producer. Okay. Nice. Nice. So you have a long list of, of, Individuals that you have listened to and really studied, if you will, you have you you, you really have, have studied these individuals and how they approach the work and and basically uh, crafted that into your own into your own style. Yeah, I guess you can say that. Yeah. Okay. No, that's great though. I mean, I I think that's a one. You you are, you know, uh, it just sounds like just basically listening to you. You you have been like a student and a sponge and just absorbed all of these other individuals and, and, and really encapsulated uh, what they're doing and, and um, into your own work and what you're doing. And yeah, you know, I, I like to call it the rewind. When you're compelled to rewind a song and, and put it on repeat and listen to it over and over, you want to understand what is it about that song that, that draws you into it. And, and then you, you study it from listening to it so much. You know, how the, how the chords progress and, and how they did the, the vocal arranging and, and the lyrical structure. It, it's a lot, a lot to it. It's a, it's a lot to it, but it, it really gets easy and they make it seem easy. And I guess it does come easy after you've done it for a while. It just, it just comes natural. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I I was noticing uh, that you had mentioned as one of your primary influences was the, the group The Temptations. Yes, sir. Oh, okay, yes. okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I I want to ask you, what was it about their this particular group sound, their sound that that um really um that you liked that that you know kind of hooked hooked you? The harmony, the harmony, and the way those brothers put their stage show together, their choreography, and and the, the vocal range in the group. You had Eddie Kendricks with that high falsetto, and you had Melvin Franklin with that low bass. Oh, yeah. That that, that bass that, that just ruptures a room. And then you had the, the, the tenors in the middle and David Ruffin, and you put it all together, and Paul Williams with, with his soul that he brought to it, and, you know, it was just like, it was, you couldn't beat that. And it was just so polished. So I always wanted to be in a group, in some kind of vocal group like that. But they were like the epitome of an R&B group to me. And, and we, we still 
at this time, we're fortunate to have the Otis Williams, the last member, the last living member, mm-hmm. still around with us today from that original lineup. So yeah, the Temptations, man. That that was my, that was like the ideal group for me. Wow, nice. You know, um, they they have done uh, TV movies on the Temptations, and um, I remember an, another movie that was done kind of in a similar Five Heartbeats. I don't know if you remember that movie. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, um, one of the things that I noticed about the the movie, or both movies, I should say, one was a miniseries, the, the Temptations was actually a miniseries, but what I noticed was kind of the dynamics of the groups and, you know, the brotherhood and, and the camaraderie and also the conflict and, and, you know, some of the, you know, some of the, you know, um, things that happen within a group. And just tell me your own if you would, tell me your own experience in terms of being in different groups and what you've experienced. Hmm. Well, being in a group is, is fun and it's, it's the challenge at the same time because you have different guys coming together with different ideas. And sometimes the ideas clash. And then the question becomes, well, which direction are we going to go? And uh, many groups have have disbanded because of that. So it, it becomes a thing of being able to hear and listen to your fellow members and consider what they're trying to do and be willing to compromise. Being in a group is full of comp- compromise mm-hmm. because you, you have to realize that it cannot be all about one person. One person is not bigger than the collective, and you got to respect that. And, and it's real easy for, like, your ego to kind of get in the way, and, and um, it'll affect the, the success of the group at some point. So it, it's fun because you, you have your, your boys to, to fall back on, mm-hmm. and, and y'all, y'all can experience the fun all at the same time. And you have something to chop it up with, with, with your boys. Mm-hmm. So, you're doing this this um, project for Black Music Month. I want you to talk a little bit about that project for my listeners who may not know about it, what it is that you're doing. Tell us a little bit. Alright, the, the project is entitled Group Hugs. And I, I'm releasing it. I've just released it during the month of Black Music Month. And Group Hugs started out as a simple tribute song where I was going to pay homage to the groups that I was familiar with, like The Temptations and The Four Tops and The Intruders, Blue Magic. Those are the groups that I was familiar with. Mm -hmm. But when I started getting into it, I started learning about all these other groups. And these other groups had some really, really good songs. Songs that we don't hear about. Mm -hmm. So what was originally going to be about a three and a half minute song, it started growing and and, and growing and becoming longer. Because the groups that I was discovering, it was imperative that I included them in this tribute. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted people to be aware of these groups that were out in the 40s and the 50s that had these 
these wonderful songs. And then I started getting upset. I was I was upset because we, as an audience, as the pub, as the public, have not been blessed with the opportunity to hear these groups on the oldies stations, like you do the white groups, the white oldies stations. I mean, when they play on the oldies stations here in New York, it's like they roll out the red carpet for the Beatles. You know, it's like, drum roll, please. Here comes the Beatles. And they make such a big deal out of that. Meanwhile, the Beatles were influenced and, and heavily inspired by black artists who those pop radio stations, the white radio stations, will not play. And that bothered me. So I started looking into, like, the whole aspect of black radio and, and black disc jockeys and, and just trying to understand, like, how it got to the point where we don't even have radio stations anymore where we could play whatever artists we wanted to to expose the new generations to that, that old artistry. Mm-hmm. And then I learned, okay, well, man, we don't have black radio because black radio was bought out. There are no more black-owned radio stations. We have black radio formatted stations, but they're not owned. So we have no control over how long they'll be in existence or what kind of programming is going to be on that station. And that became a problem, so I wrote about that. And that one tribute song became a project. It became like a musical documentary. So now the Group Hugs Project, it has three videos associated with it that are um, going to be released during the month of Black Music Month. There's actually four videos that are going to be released. And the the subject matter that I, I delved into with this project explores the, the Black music experience here in America by way of the artists, the DJs, and Black radio itself. That's a awesome project. And by the way, I did have the, the opportunity to, to look at the hug, the group hugs video. And oh, okay. it's impressive. I have to say very impressive. I, I noticed how you, you start in the 1940s, I believe, and working yes. all the way up from 1940, uh, 1940s, I should say to, uh, 2000s. Correct. And I, yeah. I was impressed by all of the various groups, some of which I I knew and, and many of which I did not know existed. Right, right. I appreciate that. No, that appreciate was that. very, very well done. And all of the, the, the song itself and the recording of the song, that was all your music as opposed to incorporating, well, you incorporated like bits and pieces of their originals in your song. But that was all, all yours, right? The writing. Yes, the the, the music bed was all my writing. The the music that's that's original music, and um, the clips that I that I used, I actually did the vocals. I, I didn't sample any music. I just sang like five second clips of each group that I wanted to to uh to put a, a spotlight on. 
that was a challenge in itself because, you know, for, for two things, you have to figure out what songs will flow better back to back. You know, I had to decide what songs were going to follow each one. And then I was like, okay, well, I, in one minute I was singing about the Delta Rhythm Boys, and then I would go into New Edition, and then I'd come back to Blue Magic. And then I said, nah, you know, maybe it's a better way to arrange it because the people who are familiar with the Delta Rhythm Boys might not know who New Edition is. And people who know New Edition may not know who the Dutch Rhythm Boys are. So I, I, what I did is I did it chronologically. I started from the 1940s and then I, I worked my way up so that each decade you, you would be able you would you would hear more of the groups that you were familiar with and could identify with. And you could like kind of jump on the bandwagon and get into the song. Yeah. Yeah, so no. clearly, you know, older, older people would be more familiar with the first half of the song and uh, vice versa. The, the, the younger generation would be more familiar with the latter part of the song. Very nice. And if you're just joining us, welcome to 52 Conversations. My name is B. Moore and my guest today is Charles Bronxton. And he is a producer, songwriter, and we're talking about his project for... Um, Black Music Month, Black Music Month, uh, and actually uh, it's entitled Group Hugs. So I was listening to that piece and the harmonization. Uh, you know, when, when you said that you had recorded those five-second clips, so not only did you record just the hook that you rec that of that piece, you had to record all the harmonies and everything, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was some oh, yeah. work. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely some work. Definitely some work. But it sounds good. But it, it, was, it was a labor of love. Yeah. I, I think you could tell that. I think that, that really came across in terms of, you know, just that, that segment. I, I mean, I, I'm hoping that listeners will go to YouTube and, and get a chance to listen and hear and see, you know, because it's a, it's a lot of, uh, you see the styles change, you see the fashion change and some of the moves of the, you know, of the different groups change over time as they, as they progressed, uh, you know, and, 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 and the notoriety, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, some of the stages that they were on and some of the venues that they were performing in, um, you, you saw, saw them grow and, and even the videos, uh, the degree of production that was in the videos, uh, just just um, move along and progress as, as time had passed along too. Right, right. And and the video the video is like the uncut version. That's just like I just let it all hang out. I just put the whole unedited version of group hugs on YouTube because you have that freedom to just sit there and check it out. You don't have to worry about time restraints that radio. Has. But, you know, I also did an edited version for radio because you can't come out with, with a long, extended version like that for radio. Radio, you have to keep it within a certain timeline. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, the, the video version is the full-length version. Yeah. No, and and there's also an acapella version that I put on the uh, on the release as well. Oh, great. Very nice. Uh -huh. Very nice. I have to, I have to uh, check that out. <laughs> I have to check that out, too. Definitely. Uh, yeah. 
You know, one of the things that, you, you know, when I was reading the, about what you do and your, your music, Charles, one of the things you talk about is the overt misappropriation of black music. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit in terms of the history behind that practice and, and how that's really being um, done today. How's that, how's that being done today? So if you would, just, just briefly um, talk about that practice and you know the history behind it and, and how it has kind of brought itself into present day time. something that also bothered me when I look back into the, the groups that I was writing about or, or, or singing or paying tribute to in group hugs. I noticed that a lot of the songs that were made popular in the 50s and the 60s by white artists were originally done by black artists. And on the oldie stations that play here in New York, you'll hear like a shout, but you won't hear the Isley Brothers version of it. You'll hear the Beatles version of it. You won't hear Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff. You'll hear Eric Clapton's version of I Shot the Sheriff. And this is like a pattern. This is something that they've been doing for the longest time. So what I did is I went and I found the most graphic example of that that I could find. And I went to the beginning of what they like to call rock and roll. And I used the example that happened with the architect of rock and roll, which most in our community recognize to be Little Richard and what happened in his situation, which was you had a guy named Pat Boone who didn't care anything about R&B music, didn't want to release the song, thought it was a silly song, but he did it anyway. Hmm. And after recording Little Richard's song, who white radio wouldn't play, they wouldn't play the Little Richard version, but after Pat Boone recorded Little Richard's version, White Radio embraced it, played it, and then it became a bigger hit than Little Richard's did. All because Little Richard was a black man, and they didn't want to play him on the radio. And they came up with all kinds of excuses to not do it. And that led me to a project called, or, or led me to doing a project or a song called Pretext. And Pretext is an acronym for Prejudice restricts exposing today's extraordinary talent. And what I did is I used actual quotes from Little Richard at various times and Pat Boone during different times, and I put them all together so that you can see exactly what happened and, and, and do a parable from back then to today and see that this is this has been an ongoing phenomenon. Because without putting them together, you wouldn't really see what's going on here. But just, just like taking those quotes and putting them together is like, ah, oh, okay. Here you have the, the, the actual people who lived it, telling it like it is, and, and it's just no 
It's, it's straight, no chaser. And, it, and it's blunt. It's pure racism. And I didn't just use black artists to tell the story, and I, and I kept my narrative out of it. I mean, I, I summarized it at the end, but the body of it, I let the artists tell the story. And it's different artists from the music industry back then who were just laying it out and being quite up upfront about what transpired. Hmm. And that's pretext. And there's a video coming this month on that song. Okay, we'll have to look for that. We'll have to look for that. And the the one thing that's uh, that kind of sticks with me even about that, what you say in that, Charles, is that this is a practice that's even being done in current day industry. And talk a little bit about that, how that how that's being done right now. Yeah, well, right now, R&B is accepted when you're hearing it from Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake. They even appear to be trying to make Justin Timberlake the new Michael Jackson. And I like Justin Timberlake. I, I love that uh, Love Sexy album that he did with uh, Timberland. It's a dope album. It's not taking anything away from his talent. You know, and anyone should be able to, to do a particular genre or participate in a particular genre that they feel and they have an appreciation for. My issue is that the way this society is here in America, like like I said, they, they want to hear it here in the U.S., but they don't want to hear U.S. doing it. They'd rather see somebody else doing it. So they'll, they'll blow up a Justin Timberlake's record and play that all on pop stations, but they won't give Usher that kind of love. To me... Usher was the runner-up. As a matter of fact, he was the first candidate to be the new Michael. You know, he just had it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Justin Timberlake can dance and everything, but they they put more emphasis on when Justin does it. And you had Tank. Tank had a song called Stronger. That's a pop record. That's a pop record, anymore. But they would never play that on a pop station. And... The parable to take was, was Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke had a song called You Send Me. Mm -hmm. And white radio would not play it. And that was a pop record. So what they tried to do is they tried to call it an R&B record so they wouldn't have to play it. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's what we're dealing with. And that's what I covered in the song. Unfortunately, we still have... As far as we, and I say we, particularly as African Americans, blacks, in, um, in, in this society have come, there's still a lot of things that, that we still have to, to work on. And it sounds like this is definitely one of them. Yeah, because, you know, we, we always try to be inclusive. We, we, I think we, we're inclusive to our detriment. You know, white radio is not trying to play us, but we're trying to be the station that welcomes everybody. We we play it all. You know, we had the the the, the mix, the, what they call it, uh, adult contemporary, and we can just play it all. We're all inclusive. We want everybody on the bandwagon. But you know, it's nothing wrong with being exclusive because you're, you're catering to a market. You know, you gotta have, you gotta allow other people to come to you so that they can get what it is that you have to offer, and vice versa. Mm. 
you know, but I don't know, man. It's, it, it was it was just really, it was really depressing in a lot of places where I was doing the investigating and, and learning about what happened and some of the stuff that the, the radio stations did, which caused them to lose the radio stations. And they, they, you don't have black ownership anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a lot of pride, it's a lot of happiness, but it's just some things that upset you as well when you learn about it. Sure. It's not saying that we should be, I'm not promoting racism, but there's a point where you have to say, look, we're going to cater to our demographic and our audience, and we're not going to be pressured into not doing what it is that we do best. You know, like like, uh, DJs, it was a certain vernacular that DJs had. They were able to talk to their audience, and, and the audience understood them. And then what I learned is that you had um, these white consultants that went to black radio and convinced them to embrace this format called More Music, Less Talk. Mm-hmm. And what they were really doing when they went to these radio stations by by telling them and convincing them to do that was to stop the DJ from talking so much in the way that black DJs know how to talk because the audience understood that and can relate and could relate to that. So once they got the DJ to shut up, then that means you could bring in a white DJ that can play the records just like the black muted DJ plays the records. And then the next thing you know, you had white people running black formatted radio stations. And before you know it, the radio station was owned by white people. Mm. You know, it's deep. It's deep. Wow. And and I covered all of that in, in group hubs. Okay. There's a song on there that, that's called um, The Demise of Black Radio. I also have one that's called The Demise of the Personality DJ. You got one called uh, Black Music Without Black People. Mm. You know, I just I just covered everything. I just I just went in. I, I Rather than just put out a single a couple years ago, I just took the time to just really go into this, this thing deeper so that I can incorporate everything and just weave it all into one package where you can listen to it, you can enjoy the the, the music, the trivia, the harmonies, and then take a little break and listen to some some talk because it's it's a talk format on a couple of the records where I take quotes and I tell you, I, I get to present the story to you so that you can see what happened, what really happened in history so that you can see how it evolved to where we are now. And then you get back into the music and you, you end it with, you know, the acapella version of group hugs that I told you about. Nice, nice. Well, it it, it sounds like you, you really did what artists do. And um, you see something and you reflect upon it and you express it using your your art form. In your case, music. And, and um, right. that's, that's what an artist does. So... That's that's you know that's all right that's all right brother. Um, well, that's what an artist is supposed to be able to do, but unfortunately, a lot of labels 
water down an artist's intent because, you know, they, they're afraid that they're not going to sell records or they, you know, for whatever the record label's reason is. And that's the reason that I started my own label so that I wouldn't have to feel stifled and I could just present things the way that I want to put them out. Certainly. Tell me a little bit about the journey that you had to go through to, to start your own label. Well, well you know, you, you have to incorporate yourself and, and make yourself a, a legitimate business because if you're going to have somebody sign to your label, which is not what I intended to do at the, in, in the beginning, but if you're going to sign somebody, then you have to be a real label. And in becoming a label... I wind up being, you know, the CEO and all of that and everything that comes along with that. You know, you have the, the, the tax issues. You got to do corporate taxes. And, you know, you got to make sure certain things are filed on time and payments to the city and state. And then when, when you put something out, you have to have promotion behind it. You have to have social media in the day and time that we're in, mm -hmm. um, public relations, and all of these things, and you gotta have radio. You gotta have radio, which is something that I struggled with in the beginning. Like last year, I, I, was, I was trying to get radio, or, or you know, to, I actually went and recruited a radio person to get my first project onto radio. And I, I was facing the same problem that most artists face, which is the gatekeepers. And I was told by the radio person, oh, well, you know, the, the radio stations that I have connections with, their programming directors don't like the song. And therefore, they're not going to play it for the masses of the people that they have a connection to. They're not going to play it on their stations. And my thing was just like, just put it in front of the people. Let them hear it. Let them decide. Mm -hmm. So the, the video was available and I'm talking about the, the video that I uh, did with Haley Smith entitled, I Miss My Daddy. And the video was doing very well on YouTube and it was being played on some uh, video shows and whatnot. It was doing really, really good, getting good reviews. But I didn't get radio on board until this year, just a, a couple months ago. So tell me a couple of other projects that you're working on currently. What else are you doing these days? Well, you know, when you're doing the, the label thing, when you're at the head of a label, it kind of slows down your creativity, especially when you don't have people handling certain aspects of the record label for you. So a lot of the creativity has slowed down, but I have so much material on deck waiting to be released that, you know, I don't necessarily have to create something to be ready for mass release because it's already there. I have some things on deck right now uh, that are forthcoming, and I'm looking forward to putting them out after I do the, the Group Hugs project. I'm also a part of a, a group called New York. It's a collection of a group of cousins, blood cousins, who individually produce music, who come together to, to form a production unit and produce songs for themselves as well as other artists. And Lou York stands for Lyricist of Unique Yet Ordinary Rhythms and Keys. 
And the, the blood cousins are from St. Louis as well as New York. Hence the name New York. That's coming down. It's like two videos that are on deck for that group that's coming. Um, there's some some solo stuff as well. And it's, it's some good stuff coming, coming down the line. So look out for it. Definitely, definitely. And, and just as a final question, I, I would like to ask, you know, what are you hoping, Charles, to to accomplish in the music industry overall? What would be your ideal accomplishment? Well, I have, a, I guess, a more short-term accomplishment as well as a long-term accomplishment. I think the short-term accomplishment, meaning the immediate accomplishment that I would like to make would be with the Group Hugs Project to bring awareness to organizations and support to organizations that help older black artists who are no longer performing, such as the, the Rhythm and Blues Foundation or the Living Legends Foundation, to where people become aware of these organizations and donate to them to help our elder artists, because nobody's going to help us but us. We can't count on anybody else to help us. So we have to do it ourselves. So it, it'll really be an accomplishment if, if I can get people on board with that and, and bring attention to the need for that, for, for, for such a thing and can and contribute. I would like to inspire people to contribute, donate, and help out. And the long-term accomplishment I would like to make is to just be able to have a body of music that is, is ongoing and can inspire people. Because what is old music right now is new music to another generation. So I want to be able to, to resonate with each generation with the music that I make. Those are great goals, Charles. I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to have talked with you today. My guest uh, for today has been Charles Bronson, and he is a songwriter, producer, record label owner, among other things. Uh, and it's been a pleasure talking with you, Charles, today. I, I wish you best success in all of your endeavors. I appreciate that. I appreciate you letting me talk to your audience and you know, let them know they can follow me on Twitter at Charles Bronson, C-H-A-S, Bronx Son, as in Son of the Bronx. That's my Twitter handle as well as my Facebook handle. And also, check out my YouTube channel, Mound Records, M-O-U-N, like pictures Mound without the D, M-O-U-N Records. And make sure you subscribe and hit the notification bell so that you'll be uh, notified immediately when the new videos are dropped. And, and definitely follow me on Instagram at Mound Records. Sounds great. All right, Charles, it's a pleasure talking to you. Best wishes to everything. Thank you, B-More. I appreciate it. To learn more about Charles Bronxton's Mound or M-O-U-N music label and learn how you can support organizations such as the Riverman Blues Foundation and the Living Legacy Foundation, check out his Facebook page at Mound Records. 52 Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.